0: Hey everyone, this is Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt, and you're listening to the audio version of the 100% Wild podcast. And today on the show, Matt and I are joined again by the mad scientist himself, Mark Drury. And the topic today is related to a listener submitted question about patterning bucks. And the information covered in this one really is pretty darn awesome, and Mark even uses the story of the 217-inch buck he just killed last week to illustrate some of these concepts. So you're not going to want to miss this one. That said let's get right into this interview hey everyone welcome to another episode of the 100% wild podcast i'm mark kenyon of wired to hunt with me is matt drury and today we have a special guest with us again back on the show mark drury how are you guys
1: good
2: well can't complain
1: you know, you say special guest, but when he's killing two hundred and seventeen inch deer, <laughs> you gotta have the guy on, right?
0: <laughs> That's the truth. Congratulations, Mark.
2: Hey, thanks. I appreciate that very much. It was a fun day.
0: Oh my gosh. I can't I cannot imagine between you know, I remember it's funny. So many of us, you know, follow your hunts through all the various things you guys do across media. So last year was so exciting to see you kill Bucktober, this your first 200 inch buck, and then when I saw this happen, I just, I, my excitement got lost now because now you're just spoiled. <laughs> that's that's incredible. That's really incredible. And I'm excited to hear about the story, which I think we are going to talk about today, right, Matt?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We um, we got a couple cool things regarding the story. Of course, Mark went live on Facebook uh, after the recovery. And um, you've gone live again, kind of sharing some of the video and the pictures that you've captured uh, regarding that book. And over on the YouTube page where this podcast airs, we've uh, put up a kind of a watch party that Mark had at his house. We edited together together. Um, yeah, you know, that night, you know, Mark had a bunch of people come up to his house and check the, vi- you know, watch the video, and Mark kind of goes through the story, and so we edited that together and put it up on Dod TV here on the Jury Outdoors uh, YouTube channel. So we just put that up last night, actually. So it's it's pretty cool. So we're definitely diving into all things danger.
0: Understandably, it's it's a story worth telling, and I got to see that video actually this morning. It was my. It's funny when I woke up this morning, I kind of you know page through my phone and see what's new, and that video was one of the first things I saw. So I started watching it, and my wife came in at like seven in the morning. She's like, "What are you watching?" And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> Mark killed a big buck <laughs> again." <laughs> yeah. So um. So that said, though, our listener submitted question today, you know, kind of pairs really nicely into this story of danger. So I was thinking maybe. We listen to that question, and then maybe Mark, you can tell us that story and how it relates to this question that we're going to answer. You bet, man. Works for me. Hey, this is Tim in Columbus, Ohio. My question is: when you guys talk about patterning a buck, what exactly are you talking about to pattern a buck uh, during the
1: summertime? Thank you.
0: Now I know he mentioned the summer, but I'm kind of hoping, Mark, you can kind of walk us through, you know any time of year, any time of the season, how do you go about this process of patterning a mature buck? And I don't know, maybe you want to lead with with the story of Danger and how you put a pattern on him?
2: Sure, and it really, you know, Danger always started in the summer for me uh, because he was uh, very much a, a homeboy on a particular 180-acre track that I had. I literally lived there from when I first put the cameras out in mid-July all the way up through October the 15th through the 20th, it varied year to year from the time he was two and a half, three and a half, four and a half. I had hundreds of pictures of him. And, uh, so in answer to Tim's question, it's about, um, the information that you garner from your pictures. When we talk about patterning a buck, in other words, we're trying to look for tendencies that that buck gives you through the pictures that you're taking of him. And when I look at pictures, particularly summer pictures, I'm not necessarily as worried about the weather because I think weather affects them less during the summer when they're growing than once they go hard horn. But once they lose that velvet and you get closer to the season, especially when you're drifting back and looking at previous year's pictures, if you have those, then I'm looking at every single thing about that day. And I'll look at the picture, especially if it's a daylight, And and most importantly, I look at what direction he's traveling. And generally, I put my cameras up in strategic locations to help me understand direction of travel. If it's of a morning and he's pre-dawn or just about dawn, he's probably heading to bed. So I note that and go, okay, he's probably bedding over here somewhere. Depending on the time of the picture then, okay, how far could he have traveled before he went to bed? If it's of an evening, he's probably coming out of his bed going towards food, so be mindful of the time of the day that the camera took the picture. In addition to that, I will go back and historically look at wind direction that day, wind speed that day, barometric pressure that day, temperature that day, where we were the previous two or three days on weather to see if it's in the middle of a front, the front end of a front, the tail end of a front, and I get that historical data off of a a website called wonderground.com. W-U-N-D-E-R-G-R-O-U-N-D.com. And there is an almanac on there. You can go to history, plug up any day, any month, any year, and it will tell you all of that information. So I find this information very helpful to see what triggers make this particular deer move. And, And by and large, generally those triggers make most of the deer move. And in our case, or in the case of danger, most of the bucks that we generally hone in on we're looking at what triggers a mature deer to move uh year and a half two and a half three and a half are just a little bit different by the time that they get four five six years old danger was five you start to see a funneling effect of daylight activity going to nighttime activity because the older they get the slower they move the lazier they are and they just don't move during daylight very often tim so you have to keep that in mind if you're patterning a buck that you have history with in previous years and all of a sudden you're into the next season, keep in mind he's one year older and he's not going to necessarily do everything he did in previous years, but he might do some of those things when the weather's exactly right. So I'm monitoring all that and I'm trying to put together a pattern. I'm looking for tendencies. I'm looking for where he's betting on certain wind directions, certain wind speeds, because it is amazing how it will vary where a buck beds depending on the weather. And that's one of the things that I, I look closest at. You know, granted you got a daylight picture of him, but what beds he choosing that day, or what food source he choosing that day? Well, what was the weather doing that day, and how fast was that wind blowing? That's one of the factors that I look at most is wind speed, wind direction,
0: of course. How do you go about actually organizing all this information? Because I feel like one of the challenges is okay if I'm trying to collect all this different data. For this specific buck, and then you know you make you're taking these kind of lessons from each one of these things you see. Do you have any like journal you put together or a chart where you map all this stuff out? Or I don't know. Is there a way that you actually try to physically get all this stuff in one place so you can look at it and kind of see it holistically?
2: I don't. I mean, it's generally up here. Like I, I just when I see it, then it's there, and I don't forget it. Particularly on a deer. You know, I mean, when I see a pattern and I see something that he triggered, I generally, I have a very, I'm very forgetful. You can ask Matt, I can't remember my, my own name some days. But when it comes to deer, I generally, those are the, I think it's selective memory. My wife yeah. calls it like, I can remember that stuff, but I can't remember simple stuff like, you know, phone numbers and zip codes and just stuff. But my mind's full of deer stuff. So I, I don't, I don't take notes, but I've got all my pictures in my Reconyx buck Buckview. So I will, when I get on a deer like Danger, I had a file on him last year already. And I take every picture that I've ever had of him, that I I feel like it's him, and I put them all in that particular file. And then I moved to that file into my 2016 photos, and whenever I'd get a new one, I'd put him in there. So um, that, coupled with sightings when we go out, you know, I'll note the weather, note what he's doing, and note what bed he came out of, and those types of things uh, as well when we actually, you know, encounter him and i think danger i remember encountering him twice at age two and a half we encountered him twice at age three and a half we encountered him three times at age four and a half and then this year that was the one time we encountered him so you know all total we only saw the deer eight times his whole life but i have 700 pictures and probably 10 or so um video clips of him
1: it's amazing because like well, we talked about it off air. We were talking about a deer that, that I was chasing or am chasing. And I can't retain that information like you can. I have to look at it, sit like sit it in front of me and actually look at it. And Mark Kenyon, are you kind of the same way? I, I feel like you may be. Yeah, It has to be in front of me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I try to – either use, you know, like we talked about, I've been using this one online tool called Deer Lab, or I just have a journal. Like right now I'm hunting this buck Holyfield, and so I've got all my photos uploaded online that I use to analyze, but then also for my sightings, I just have sort of a journal where, to to, to Mark's point, I just have every time I've ever seen him, what the wind direction was, what were the weather, weather conditions were, where I think he was coming from and going to, um, and any other information like that. So now I've got a full page of, I've got like, I don't know, 15, 20 sightings of this buck now and at least i can look at it there versus trying to think back on every single one because i i'm not i'm not as good as mark i can't keep it all in my head
1: mark you mentioned that you you know, you're looking at where they're changing, like where they're sleeping at, where their bedroom's at. Do you think that, I mean, does that happen a lot where the deer are changing where they go to bed? Because I always, like at my lease, I always feel like they're in the one area, you know, I don't have a lot of timber, so I feel like they're they're all bedded right here in this timber. But I wouldn't have necessarily thought they'd move depending on what the weather was doing. Do you find yeah, they, they move will, a lot?
2: they positively will. You know, your lease is probably smaller. I'm looking at, you know a couple thousand acres, uh, if you took all the ground up here, but specifically where he lived, he lived on a hundred acre, 180 or so. Most that's where I got his pictures the most. And then he actually moved on me when, when, when we killed him, but on that 180, he would vary where he bedded, you know, Mm -hmm. just based on time of the year, wind speed, wind direction, all that stuff. It's, it's, yeah, they definitely bed in different places. So, um, you got to kind of be mindful of that. Hmm.
0: So, so Mark, what was the pattern that you discovered that you ended up using to move in on him and kill him? Or what was that tendency or something?
2: Where he was bedding on those cold fronts. Like, I I was only getting him about four or five times, oh, throughout the—well, from September 21st through the day I killed him. I only had him like six or seven times, but every one of those was going into this— 15, 20 acre patch of brush that, um, I've always overlooked. I just never paid attention to it. Um, it was when we set the blind up and you guys are going to go, that's impossible. But when we set the blind up, I, I made the statement to Wade, I go, this is the first time I've owned this farm 10 years. And this is the first time I've ever been inside this, this, this patch of brush. I just don't go there because it's, it's in a situation that I'm constantly passing it by. It's one of those places you just overlook it. I'm going to the heart of the farm and going where I've had the best luck in years past. And I've just never hunted there. And, um, but when we set that blind up, it was the first time I'd ever been there in my, in the 10 years that I'd owned that particular track. So I kept getting him. I got him coming from the South heading North into that patch. And, you know, so it's a small patch. So I had to be careful about when I went around it, I waited for a south wind. I went and put a camera on the other end of it, two of them, and then waited for a south wind again, I, I, you know, four or five days later. And there were days where I was catching him on the south end coming in that he never went out that north end, at least based on what I could tell. And I had him going the other way in the evening a couple of times. And I'm like, he's he's bedding in here right after these cold fronts. So that next cold front, you know, well, first of all, during the warm front, I didn't have a stand in there and the trees were all about as big around as my my ankle so we had to we actually built a platform on skids so that we could put the blind on it further away from him then we put a muddy bull on it we drug it in with the tractor and i drug it into this grass patch and backed it into these trees well in the trees you can't see anywhere it's so thick the grass patch was six foot tall so we mowed out an area that encompassed two or three trails that was going from cedar thicket to cedar thicket. And I thought, if he's gonna cross through here, this way we can see him. So we mowed that down, so we had a sight line. And behind the blind, we cut for two hours just to give us a sight line out to about 50 yards. And then we cut some upper limbs so I could see out into this big bottom field. And you know, the first first morning that I had the right wind on that cold front, the 21st, we went in and got in it. And and we killed him right there at five steps in in that bedroom, so um, part of that was just good fortune, but part of it was an anticipation of the weather conditions, a deer moving during daylight, and two, that he might be bedding in there during during that, that particular cold front.
0: Right? Mark, I, I know we have a fan question from Facebook that kind of relates to that uh, topic of grass from Zach Young, where he noticed in the video he saw a lot of switchgrass or a lot of tall brush, I and mean, he'd like to know um, more if it's natural or if they manicured it. So basically you manicured it, but what's what's the benefit of doing that?
2: Well, the brush is natural. You know, I, I always say you just can't create that. Mother Nature's the best at growing deer beds. And it always, um, it always hurts me when I, when I see a farmer dozing out of a fence row or dozing out of a brush patch, cause there goes another bedroom, but those deer use those bedrooms, but the grass we actually planted there, um, as part of a quail program through the FSA office. So even then I hired it done and I, I never went, down there where that where that grass was we burnt it a few times but still i never just i just never went in that little cove right there it's only maybe a oh that field might be five acres and then the brush itself's maybe 12 to 15 so maybe it's 20 acres between the grass and all that so quite a little nice little bedroom for him
1: i think the thing that i you know that that's the most notable here is just how aggressive you got I mean, that's the one thing that I always find myself like too scared to make that kind of a move. You know, so what is it that history with the pictures that you're just like, all right, this is the move? I mean, where's the confidence come from? Because that feels like it's a pretty bold move to go into the bedroom and, and put a blind up and do all the cutting and the trimming and mow the paths and, and all that stuff.
2: Well, part of that was, it's, it's twofold there, Matt. Part of that was necessity, and part of that was fear. And the necessity was I wanted to get in there and try and kill him while he was there. And I was fearful that once October passed and he got on does, then there was no chance of patterning this buck and getting on him. October is the month to kill a really mature deer. Make no mistake about it. Everybody waits for the rut. But if you know of a deer and you know where he's at, October's the month of getting before he gets a girlfriend. Once they get girlfriends, man, I mean – expectation and, and the stuff we're talking specifically here about when with Tim's question on patterning of if you're going to take advantage of that patterning you're going to do it in October because once November gets here there are no patterns I always say expectation turns to hope once November hits the calendar and as much as we analyze and the way we do our food plots the way we hunt we are much better when we can expect to kill a deer than when we hope to kill a deer. You know, I mean, I I just, I felt like I had to get him killed during October because once the rut came, history showed that he went MIA every year from middle of October through late November, you know, through about Thanksgiving. Once he got back on the food, he'd come back to that home range. Now, that being said, he might have just went to that rut range earlier this year because I lost him in his normal range September the 2nd. And just out of a hunch, I caught him over there where I killed him, which is three-quarter of, three of a mile away. So that might have been his rut rage. Maybe I was on it. I don't know. But I caught him over there, and I was like, well, you're here. I'm going to crash in on you. And, frankly, I didn't care if I spooked him because I, it, deep down inside, I was so ready for him where he always lived because I had so much history. I'm like, if I bump him out of here, hopefully he goes back to where I, I have my plan laid out. Man, I've been dreaming of this plan that we laid out with food plot stands access. We changed everything on that farm for that one specific deer and he left it September 1st. <laughs> so, you know, go figure. You, you feel like you have a pattern and then they throw you a curveball, but that's the mystique of hunting whitetail deer.
1: Mark Kenyon, are you sitting here thinking what I'm thinking like in your situation with Holyfield and my situation yes. with Hook? I'm thinking I'm about to miss out on this pattern that I finally figured out here.
0: That's exactly what I'm thinking about. And it's, it's challenging because I've definitely been i I've kind of been thinking about the same thing. Like I'm running out of time, and so I've been hitting it hard this week. And I've had three close encounters with Holyfield. I've hunted four times. I've seen him three of those four times. And I just, because of property lines, I just can't get into there where I really need to be to get an arrow in him. And now I'm just kind of hoping that he makes a mistake and fouls a doe. The interesting thing is that I already have every single night, I've, every time I've seen him, I saw him Monday night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, Thursday night. Every time I've seen him, he's been chasing does. So he's already running them around over here. So I don't know if that's going to change things up even more. So it's a challenge. but checking
2: those. He's checking does.
0: Well, he, he's checking. but I mean, he's literally running around open fields chasing a single doe all over that's the place. How
2: they, that's, that's how they check them. I mean, that's what they're doing. Like, he, they're, they're ready. Like, the bucks right now are ready to explode. And because of that, that testosterone reaches a peak. The does aren't in yet. But the bucks do what they normally do, and they're going to check them, and that's how they check them. They'll run after them and check them and go through all their normal chasing and whatnot. But once they actually come in estrus, the chasing stuff stops, man. They stop checking every doe. But that's what they're doing, man. Their testosterone—they're just ready to—they're ready to boil over right now. But they're—they're they're checking those does, and that's how they check.
1: Them. On all my cameras in the last six, seven days, it's been 1 a.m. to 3 a.m where I'm seeing that happening. Like the most mature bucks I have are chasing these, I see, you know, the does are flying through and then here comes a buck behind them and it's all in the middle of the night, I assume, because it's been so warm out. Is that probably the case?
2: Positively. And we're also, you know, in the dark of the moon phase. So that's my least favorite time of the calendar. The moon calendar uh, is dark of the moon. I, I see less daylight activity during that phase than I do the five to seven that precede and follow the full moon.
1: It's well. That's interesting you say that because my the deer hooked at them after all of the daylight pictures I got of them were that five days after the full moon. Well, the full moon and then the five days after. So it was exactly right. And then everything else since has been, you know, middle of the night, checking scrapes or chasing does.
2: If you take the four or five days that lead into the full moon every month, afternoon hunting is a little bit better. If you take the five to seven days after the full moon morning hunting is often a little bit better. And those are some of those tendencies that we've uh, looked at, you know, through the years and seen. It's like, okay, as you hit the full moon, the week prior, afternoons are a little bit better. The week after, mornings are a touch better. Hey, Mark, on that uh, morning versus evening, uh, I have one more fan question for this segment um, where it says, most guys don't hunt mornings in October. uh, But why did Mark choose to hunt uh, on this morning or any morning in October? And uh, that was – Interestingly enough, from September the 15th through October the 21st, we hunted every day, and it was the first morning we went and sat. And we we decided to go, A, because the warm front had passed. It was a cold front on the 20th. And then the 21st, the wind was doing a switch. It was at 2 mile an hour. The pressure was 30.3. So I felt like if we were going to get in the middle of that bedroom, we needed high pressure. Number one, we crushed everything we had in our sun pressure closet to try and minimize our scent. I rewashed it. I crushed it and we sprayed down and we went in there and we felt like we were as scent free as two humans could possibly be. Plus we had high pressure benefiting us. And I mean, we had the morning of all mornings. There were deer coming and going out of that bedroom. We saw five bucks, three were mature and we saw 15 does. And I shot him at nine thirty.
1: Wow. Plus you were in a muddy scent proof. So you, I, how, how, When did you open the window and that blind, you know, did
2: we had, it was so quiet. It was so quiet. We hunted with them. All of it. Wow. The ones we felt like the shots would be out of. Wow. Like Wade and I sat there back to back and didn't move like the whole morning. And I'd whisper to him, doe out here. He'd say, all right, doe crossing at 60, he'd give me the distances. And we literally didn't did not move, Matt, because there was not a whisper of wind in that morning and it was dead calm.
1: Those are the worst when there's nothing to cover, just the slightest, you know, clothing, you know, brushing up against other clothing or whatever. When when everything it's that quiet everything. or just like every little thing sounds like a huge, you know, thunder bang or whatever.
2: It's it's tough to kill a deer on those mornings because you literally can't blink. You literally can't. Luckily, that three and a half came in and made all that raucous with uh, breaking the tree in half. And I told Wade, I said, if there's a mature deer around, he's going to be coming. And just after that, I heard steps. So we were able to stand up and get prepped and then saw him and then killed him right there. So that three and a half that we were lucky we had a warning.
1: That three and a half, we have that on that video on DOD TV right now, the, the watch party. You, you, we really go into detail of that, and it, it throwing up the, the limb over its back and all that stuff. Great footage.
2: He got his he got his name that morning, Matt. We called him Dangerous Calling.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> very nice. I like he that. He's a nice deer, too. I mean, that's what – when I was watching oh, the footage, great. I'm like, that deer is going to be a giant. What I first thought of was when you killed Skyscraper and was it – it was a Goliath – that was correct. I mean, I, I flash back to that because I was thinking well, you watch this will be the next giant story they have in two or three years or whatever because he just he looked like such a nice deer.
2: He looks to me like the lone ten looked at three and a half. Like he looks like a twin to him. Like yeah. I'd be shocked if he doesn't have some genetics of the lone ten there because that's uh, same home range. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, hopefully that's the next storyline we get to follow a couple years from now.
2: Dangerous calling—that's his name. One hundred percent called that deer, and there is no no doubt in my mind.
0: So, so I have another question. Speaking of two hundred inch bucks, your buck you killed last year, Bucktober, that was a November kill, right? was that November
2: ninth, yes. Okay,
0: so did you develop? I mean, did you have? Because I am wondering, there is to some degree a way to pattern or is' it's A question: Is there some minute level of pattern you can do in November? For instance, you know. Do you see bucks showing back up on a property at some point in November every year when they start to rut or anything like that? I mean, how did that work with Bucktober?
2: Well, Bucktober, if you'll recall the story, the day before, Taylor and I were in there filming him that morning, and we saw him doe up that morning. Like, he was alone, got with a doe, and then stuck to her like glue. And, I mean, my heart sank because we were on his uh, bedroom. We were on his pattern, and I was like, we're done now for about 10 days. And I told her that. I said, he just locked up. We won't see him again. And luckily, it was the doe the next day. He's tending her there as he stands there and looks. She's down lower right in the frame. She's bedded. It was the doe that drug him by. So we went in with a hope, and we got lucky on Bucktober. Granted, we were still in his bedroom, but she drug him by. It wasn't, it wasn't us getting on his natural movement.
0: Okay.
1: But here again, you're being aggressive, and you're on top of where he's
2: living, Right. Yeah, I had found that the previous year on a, uh, again, on a hunch, I stuck a camera down in a draw and I had Bucktober all over my farm, never one daylight picture except in that draw. And every picture of him was daylight in that draw. And I was like, buddy, I just found your bed. And I, I, when I looked at that card, I told Wade, I said, we're going to kill this deer next year.
0: How often do you move cameras around to try to pattern deer? Do you do you just have them stationed in the same places every year and wait for them to show up on scrapes or something like that? Or do you move throughout the season trying to pinpoint and narrow down where he's moving?
2: I have a tendency. I run a lot of cameras. Between here and Texas, I've got probably 70 cameras. and That sounds like a lot, but it's what we do. On danger, I had 15 cameras on that one particular deer. So I'm trying to get every single bit of information I can accumulate. And in my mind, I'm thinking if I don't kill him this year, I need this information for next year. So I wanted more information. In years past, like last year, I might have had eight or nine cameras on him trying to figure out what he was going to do for this year. But even with that many cameras, I only got him on like three of them the whole year. I got him in the summer on a couple. And then going in and out of bed, you see right there in the cedars, I got him on uh, in and out of that bed. I got him on three of them.
1: Let me ask you, when you're putting your cameras on scrapes, do you feel like, is that a random, meaning I know some scrapes are hub scrapes and they come back to them every year, but do you feel like the pictures that you get on scrapes are more of a random nature? Like, are they, are they checking them, you know, from year to year at similar, you know, times of day and, and that type of thing?
2: Yeah, I'm actually on to another buck right now, and I've got scrapes all over this farm. I've got cameras on all of them, and I get him on one, and I get him there all the time. And I told <laughs> Wade, he's, I said, he's bedding right there. In fact, we stalked that deer two years ago, and, and unfortunately a doe caught us, but we were about to kill that deer. And he's a giant, seven-and-a-half-year-old, mainframe nine, four kickers, uh, just a giant frame deer. He's like Chiquita, but a touch bigger, man. I mean, he's, wow. a, he's a monster. Well, cause- and we, we found his bed. Cause I feel
1: like on, on the, the lease I have that the bucks will check every scrape, no matter what part of the lease it's on. It feels like they go around and at certain times they'll, they'll make their round and check all of them. And, and so yeah, it's and like
2: that, that home range starts to, exp- that home range starts to expand. And a lot of that has to do with the age of the buck too. This deer that we're on now, like uh danger got to be five and a half. His home range really shrunk. This deer we're on now, seven and a half. And man, he's, he's got a home range of about, from what I can tell about 20 or 30 acres that will expand here with time. But while he's in there, we've got a, we've got a solid play on him. I think, uh, the 30th and 31st, I feel like those are the two days we might get an eyeball and we'll try anyway.
0: Interesting. Why do you say that, Mark? Why are the 30th and the 31st?
2: Well, so those, are that's the boiling point, right? You know, always pre-lock you, if you want to go see a really mature deer, six, seven years old. Uh, catch a cold front the 30th or the 31st and that's generally the magical days and then you'll go through a bit of a November lull about the 1st through the 4th or 5th and then the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and (laughs) 9th they'll start walking again for you
1: Awesome, that's right about when I think my wife's going to have her baby
2: (laughs) (laughs) Some things are more important Yeah,
0: yeah. I know you've talked about it a lot, Mark um, but we did get a a question on Facebook about the the pre-lock reference, can you give us just a quick Scoop on what that means again just for those that maybe haven't seen 13 or haven't heard you talk about that before.
2: Prelock to me is the, the boiling point of particularly the mature deer, and that's one of our tactics in that phase is to focus in on the and uh, the biggest, most mature deer in the herd. And I don't know that the does are in estrus and they're actively breeding. However, I do think those first does that are going to come in in about a week, like the 8th, ninth, or 10th, I think they're giving off a little bit of scent that those bucks recognize and they will lock on them and stay with them all the way till it's actual breeding time. And I think the fact that you can focus in on those mature deer during this pre-lock phase is because they've already played this game back when they were three and four years old, they were doing the the seeking phase and the buck parade and all that stuff. But by the time they get five, six, and seven, everything they do is a little bit ahead of everything else. A lot of it happens at night but they will lock up before any other deer in the herd because nobody else will get around them. That's exactly what danger was doing. He was in his bedroom. That three-year-old walked in there. He was kind of up there to kick his butt and that three-year-old left running away. He was scared to death. But that pre-lock phase, 30th, 31st, you watch, we get to a little cold front, and I think we're getting one the 30th, there's going to be some mega giant shot in the Midwest. There always is. Those two days are just magical. And it's because those big bucks finally give it up during daylight. And there are very few days that they'll do that.
1: So what on, on that cold front on the 30th, what would you hone in on? You know, obviously you you in the morning, what would you hone in on compared to the evening set? you know, obviously morning time near their bedroom, I assume, it more of a timber type of a sit? And on evening, what? are you on green or what?
2: Well, here at daybreak, the wind is going to have speed to it. It's supposed to be 10 to 12 mile an hour. So we're, we're very close to the front end of the front. So when I have wind speed of a morning, I have a tendency to try and slip in a little closer to the bed because I feel like I've got a little extra cover. And I suspect the movement will be At first light or shortly thereafter because you don't have that heavy, high pressure frost that puts them down, which delays the movement. So I'm going to try and sneak in that bed. I'm going to go in earlier than normal, but I'm going to be sitting there when it's first light because I think they'll move because I have wind speed at daybreak. That evening, I still have wind speed, but it's starting to die off. And there again, I, I may still sit that, that bedroom. It depends what I see that morning. I, I may go to food. I may not. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I want to see what the deer are doing by that time, but I know that morning with that wind speed, I'm going to sneak into that bedroom.
1: Would you push the, would you get aggressive enough to push a, or sit in the wrong wind direction on something like that or no, because the wind speed. speed so high? Not, okay. not with
2: speed, because one thing about it, when you add speed to wind, that downwind direction is going to be tough to protect, even with the thirty point one, which we're going to have. We'll crush everything, and we'll minimize it, you know. But even with crushing it through scent crusher, throwing up an ozonics, you're only going to fool about seventy percent. And I, I don't want him to be the thirty percent we don't fool.
0: Okay, interesting. I can tell you, I can tell so your wheels are turning, Matt. You're thinking about hook. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. I'm thinking this might be my last shot. <laughs> uh huh.
2: Are you guys doing this for the viewer, or is this selfishly for the two deer that you guys
1: are <laughs> This is selfish. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully the viewer's just getting something out of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. We need all the help we can get, Mark.
2: That's right. Couldn't we have just had a conference call with us three? That's right.
0: <laughs> Maybe that's after this. <laughs> well, I don't know. Is there, is there anything else, Mark, that we haven't covered when it comes to patterning mature bucks that, that we should talk about here?
2: You know, the best way to pattern them is stay the heck away from them. That's one thing I I didn't mention earlier is let your cameras do the work. Be smart about when you check them. And when you put a camera up, you better have a plan on how you're going to check it, on what wind and what weather condition. That's very, very important. You can't just go throw a camera and go check it whenever you want. Like each one of my cameras for danger were on the outskirts of where I felt like he was moving and I would only go there on the appropriate wind and wind speed. I have a tendency not to sneak to a camera when when wind doesn't have a speed to it. When it's windy, you can get by with murder. When it's calm, they hear you coming and they're out of there, man.
0: Hey, speaking of that, are you I'm assuming to some degree you maybe use a vehicle like an ATV or a side-by-side or truck to go in and check some of these cameras uh, would you say that that is a safer option than walking in there most of the time even though they can hear it they're not negatively influenced
2: it depends where it's at during the summer when you've got full foliage and full growth on all i I do a lot of my checking off the tractor because man i can mow all day 20 miles check every camera and i never see a deer all day because they they stay bedded tight this time of the year once you get in the fall and leaves come off you got to be really careful about where those cameras are, and I'll check them on my way into a stand or a way out because I'm going by there anyway. Or I wake always oh, eleven, twelve, one o'clock, middle of the day. Make sure they're bedded tight and have a good wind speed in your face when you go check it. Get it and get out.
0: Okay, good to know. Well, Matt, I think we've got our work cut out for us. Uh, we need to try to put this stuff into play in the next few days, otherwise we might be uh, kicking ourselves. <laughs> so...
1: Absolutely, we might be
2: waiting until next
0: year. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, thank you, Mark, for the advice.
2: I'm one of those weird guys. I love September and October. I love December. I love November. And I absolutely, positively do not care for the rut. It is the toughest time, in my opinion, to kill a specific deer. You can go out and see a lot of deer, and you're liable to have a giant walk by that you didn't know of. But we are so into the chess match of trying to kill a particular deer. It gets tough once they get with those ladies, man. They get those girlfriends and— you just never know where they're going to go. I got lucky with Bucktober.
1: I think it's kind of two different mentalities, right? So if you're a yep. weekend warrior or a guy that doesn't have a lot of time, the rut is your best chance to see something up on their feet and moving, right? But if nope. you're if you have the time and you're really into that chess match and you know go hunting a lot, you're right. It's probably the patterning that you know get you going more so than than the rut does.
2: No question. No
0: question. Yeah. Well. Good stuff. This was this was super helpful for us personally, and I think for a lot of people because I think a lot of I think more and more this type of hunting is gaining popularity. Where you're trying to target a specific buck, and you're trying to put a pattern on them, figure out like you just said that whole chess match is becoming. I mean, I think if you experience it once, it's quickly addicting. You know that whole process of trying to get to know these deer and, and try to find a way to intercept them. So this is great stuff. We appreciate it, Mark, and uh, I think we should wrap this up real quick here, Matt. So. Just the one update for me would be to submit your question online through wired to huntcom slash 100 wild We're getting some really good questions in here. We're trying to answer as many as we can, so be sure to send that in and subscribe to the audio version of this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of those other places. And of course, you can follow along with My Hunt for Holyfield and all that stuff on the website and our social media platforms too. And Matt, you've got some updates, I'm sure?
1: Absolutely. So as you can always watch us over on the Drury Outdoors YouTube channel, you can watch this podcast or any other podcast. Uh, check out this video, The Watch Party of Danger, uh, on DOD TV there on YouTube. It's so cool. You get to see the footage of that three-year-old. You get, you know, get to see a little bit of the footage of, of uh, Danger coming up, Mark's reaction. Very neat. So go check that out. We have a lot of original hunts that we're starting to put up. So every week we'll have a new original hunt and uh, something that's never been seen anywhere before on TV, on our DVDs, or anything. So definitely tune into that. Uh, And as always, we're doing the live feeds over on Facebook on our Jury Outdoors page. Mark and Terry have been going every other phase and diving into what they're seeing, what the deer, you know, how they're moving, what they're on. So the tactics, it's very cool. So check that out. And as always, follow everything we do at Instagram and Twitter and JuryOutdoors.com on the journal.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening and good luck out hunting. All right. Peace. Thanks, guys.